Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the United States and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York City's extraordinary neighborhoods and its amazing history. Most weeks, like this one, the show focuses on a particular neighborhood, exploring not only its history, but its vibe, its texture, and its energy. What makes this neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, artists, and sometimes interesting neighborhood personalities. Occasionally, I'll host a show about an interesting part of the city that is not about a particular neighborhood, maybe one of our fine urban parks, an extraordinary museum, maybe the transit system, the city in an age of a particular social or political movement or a musical genre, or a, new, or a unique New York architectural phenomenon like Rockefeller Center. Each episode will be informative, entertaining, illuminating, and of course, fun. And each show will be available on archive and podcast the day after the show airs. And tonight is a special evening because our studio is on 76th Street on the Upper West Side, and today's show is going to highlight the Upper West Side. We're all very, very keen to be doing the show tonight. Our first guest is Lucy Levine. Lucy is a writer, historian, and New York City tour guide. She founded Archive on Parade, a historical tour and event company that takes New York's history out of the archives and into the streets. She's collaborated with institutions including the Municipal Arts Society, the Historic Districts Council, the New York Public Library, the 92nd Street Y, the St. Regis Hotel, and Landmarks West to offer exciting tours, lectures, and community events all over town. Lucy is also the public programs consultant at Friends of the Upper East Side Historic Districts, and she's a contributing history writer at Six Square Feet. Lucy, welcome to Rediscovering New York. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, you're actually from New York originally, aren't you? Yes, I am. And while I now live in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, I am actually from the Upper West Side. Uh, my original address was 300 Riverside Drive, so this is a very special uh, neighborhood for me to talk about. Oh, well, that's great. So we're welcoming you home. Yes, indeed. What kinds of work have you done in your career? Um, I've done a lot of different things. I sometimes refer to myself as a freelance nerd. Uh, so I started out uh, giving historical tours of uh, New York City, which I still do to this day and which I love to do. Uh, but I also write for uh, various websites uh, dedicated to New York City history, uh, of which Six Square Feet is one. Um, and I also collaborate with uh, museums and uh, historic preservation organizations all over New York City to offer uh, lectures and community events uh, all over town. How did you wind up going into the business that you're in? What was there a certain trigger? Did you dream of doing it when you when you were young? Absolutely. So uh, I studied history in school, and I'm a native New Yorker, so the history of New York City uh, has always been in my blood and in my heart. And I will tell you that um, when I was growing up, my uh, grandparents, they lived on 14th Street and 5th Avenue, and um, those red buses that go around town, you know what I'm talking about? Um, those um, city sightseeing buses, they would go under uh, my grandparents' window on 5th Avenue, um, and I would hear, it used to be that those buses, they had uh, very loud microphones, and so I would stand at the window and I could hear the guide speaking, uh, and I learned things about, you know, Thomas Edison and the first illuminated light bulbs on 5th Avenue, and I thought to myself as a child, oh my God, I would love to do that. That would be so much fun to be able to give that history uh, to New Yorkers and to tourists and just to share uh, what I love about the city, and so that was kind of a very early uh, formative experience with uh, just public history and, and sharing the history of the city. Wow, great that you wanted to, you found something you really loved and decided that you would do it and you, and you pursued your dream. Well, moving to your, uh, your home neighborhood as opposed to hometown, um, what was this neighborhood like before the Dutch colonized Manhattan? I always like to ask that question because, you know, we're a very old city. We're 400 years old of mm -hmm. European settlements. But, of course, there were people here living and doing things before, before the Dutch colonized us. Absolutely. So the um, original Native Americans are the Lenape people. Uh, and so they lived throughout what we now consider to be New York City, uh, and certainly they lived here. Uh, although when we talk about that 400-year history, our origin story is Henry Hudson, right? 1609, uh, Henry Hudson sails into what becomes the Hudson River on the Half Moon. Uh, and when he does that uh, in 1609, 
He professes what he sees uh, to be very pleasant, high, and bold. Uh, so the neighborhood uh, on the west side of Manhattan that becomes the Upper West Side that is adjacent to the river uh, is really one of the first sites that Henry Hudson himself will see. Uh, and it's something that he's extremely taken with as we are in the neighborhood today. So maybe he looked up on the bluff and saw Riverside Drive and decided that uh, uh, maybe he would ultimately own a piece of real estate up there. I'm only kidding, obviously. Um, on the island itself, you know, after New Amsterdam was established, uh, the Dutch established a hamlet in Harlem, which was around a farming community. Was there anything comparable in what became the Upper West Side? Absolutely. So the Dutch uh, settlement, we think of the Dutch settlement as very small, right? That uh, it's, I think, well known that the wall of Wall Street, there originally was a wall, and that was the northern border of the Dutch colony of New Amsterdam, uh, that wall built by Peter Stuyvesant. But uh, what was New Netherland was very, very large. It went from that battery settlement uh, all the way up to uh, parts of what would now even be considered uh, Pennsylvania. So it was a lot of land, and all of that land was farmland. Uh, and so on what's now the Upper West Side, uh, that was all, yes, Dutch farmland. What was what became the Upper West Side like after the English took over New York and it became New York until the time of the Revolution? What kind of development did we see in, in this part of town? Um, again, it's going to remain uh, farmhouses uh, into uh, the early 19th century. Uh, it will remain farmhouses. But interestingly enough, um, George Washington becomes very enamored with and very aware of the Upper West Side during the Battle of Harlem Heights. Uh, and he will actually suggest uh, the area just north of what is now Grant's tomb uh, as the site for the original United States Capitol. A lot of people think that the capital, the very first capital of the United States was Philadelphia. It actually was not. Uh, the first capital of the United States was here in New York City. And so uh, while the capital was originally established uh, at what is now Federal Hall at Wall and Broad Streets. Um, George Washington himself wanted it to be on the hill where we now see Grant's tomb. Wow. That's amazing. But uh, uh, the rest of the government didn't agree with him? <laughs> you know, it was just too far away at that time. Um, that part of town uh, was considered to be the country. It was home by the very uh, early 19th century, so like 1805, things like that, uh, to country estates because it was considered about five miles away from uh, what people said was New York City at that time. So, so this was really sort of where you would go to take the country air. Hmm. And we do have two structures that were country estates. They were not on the Upper West Side. The oldest building in Manhattan which is the Morris Jamel Mansion, and, uh, of course, uh, Hamilton's Grange, uh, which is now in its third location, and you can see uh, in Hamilton Heights on 141st Street. Um, moving forward a little bit, um, the railroad uh, came to Manhattan in the 1830s. It was actually a right-of-way for the Hudson River Railroad. Mm -hmm. um, did the railroad impact at all what became the Upper West Side, or was it just like there were tracks down by the river and that was all that, that they were? Oh, hugely. The, the railroad really cannot be overstated in terms of uh, what it did to the Upper West Side. And really, um, it will have an impact uh, on the Upper West Side until those tracks are covered by Robert Moses in the 1930s. Uh, so it will really have an impact for about 100 years. Um, it starts out as the very first freight line that connects uh, Manhattan to upstate New York. Um, and so in terms of the commerce of the city, it was huge. Uh, but it also turned the Upper West Side into the Wild West. Uh, in fact, 11th Avenue was known as Death Avenue. Uh, it was so dangerous because of uh, the railroad tracks, because of cattle on the West Side, because of all of this industry coming down the West Side. Um, that commuters very often would get hit by the trains and they would die. And you had the West Side Cowboys, who were a cadre of um, boys in their teens and early 20s, uh, who would be riding uh, horses ahead of the freight trains, uh, waving red flags and trying to um, warn pedestrians and commuters and later even uh, automobile drivers about you know, what would become of them if they got in the way of the tracks. But then, as now, New Yorkers didn't want to wait, and they would cross the tracks hell or high water, and it was always quite a mess. That's also where the name uh, the, uh, of, the, of the team, the Dodgers, came from in Brooklyn, you know, dodging the streetcars back. 
more than 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. It sounds like some of these uh, uh, 11th Avenue cowboys, is that what they were called? They were, they were the foreparents of the people who now are at construction sites with those orange flags warning us not to you know, cross uh, the path uh, in front of cement trucks at our own peril. Mm-hmm. When was the grid laid out in the neighborhood? Because I know the city grid was laid out in 1811, but did the grid, did it come like right after that or was it, or was it decades later? That's a great question. It's actually going to be on the heels of the Civil War. So in 1865, uh, the commissioners of Central Park were actually tasked with uh, laying out the street grid uh, both north and west of Central Park. So it was uh, they who... Uh, laid out the grid, and also they who uh, suggested what would become Riverside Park and then Riverside Drive. Hmm. When was the 9th Avenue L built, and how did that contribute to the development of the Upper West Side? Uh, so the 9th Avenue L comes to the neighborhood in 1879, um, and it's going to contribute uh, in the way that the subway uh, contributed all over the island of Manhattan, which is that it moved people northward. Uh, when you could connect to... Uh, City Hall, when you could connect to the sort of municipal nerve center of the city from points north, uh, those points grew as communities. Um, And so um, at that time, uh, you get the development of the West Side. Before that, interestingly enough, uh, it was really home uh, to squatters and their goats. Gotham actually means, this is true, Gotham actually means goat town in Anglo-Saxon, uh, and it was a joke. Do you know Washington Irving, the writer? Oh, yes. So Washington Irving uh, created the nickname Gotham. He was joking about New York City. Oh, that's goat's town, he said. Uh, but when it came to the Upper West Side, he was really right. Uh, there were more goats in the early 19th century on the Upper West Side than there were people. Wow, wow. It sounds like being in New Zealand where there were like 10 times as many sheep as there are people. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my husband and I were recently on a trip to St. Vincent and there seemed to be almost as many goats in St. Vincent as there were people. It was kind of, uh, it was kind of nice, actually, a little bit rustic. Um, I do want to talk about some of the, the early grand buildings uh, for residences in the Upper West Side, but there's one thing I want to talk about first, uh, which is the Museum of Natural History. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, uh, the uh, cornerstone was actually laid by President Grant in the early 1870s. Um, did that impact the development of the neighborhood to have, to have that built and open up? Uh, yes, absolutely. But before it did open... Um, it was actually housed at the Arsenal in Central Park. So um, the need for um, sort of natural history is something that we're going to uh, get from Teddy Roosevelt. So that's that's even uh, larger than the city of New York itself. But the Natural History Museum was actually designed by Calvert Vox, who is not as well known as Frederick Law Olmsted, which is a shame because Olmsted and Vox together uh, created Central Park. Uh, and Olmsted and Box would also work on what became Riverside Park. Um, and Box even uh, helped design the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art, which nobody really knows. So Vox had a very sort of deep connection to the Upper West Side. He even helped design Morningside Park. I mean, he really was part and parcel of this neighborhood. Um, and yes, surely um, the creation of that museum um, brought... Uh, even greater interest than there had been before, yes, to the Upper West Side. Oh, great. Okay, we're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll continue our conversation into Upper West Side history with Lucy Levine. Be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Who do you want to connect with? Are you an entrepreneur or intrapreneur looking to build your following? Welcome to our show. Follow, Follow Me Friday, Friday with Joan and Priya. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern on talkradio.nyc. We're, We're your digital, digital connectors. connectors. Woo woo! <laughs> <laughs> 
Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back to Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. I'm Jeff Goodman, and our first guest is Lucy Levine. Lucy, tell us a little bit about your business, Archive on Parade. Sure. Well, it takes the history of uh, New York City out of the archives and into the streets through uh, walking tours, lectures, and events like trivia. Uh, When I say out of the archives and into the streets, I mean that all of my uh, tours, lectures, and events are based on archival research. So uh, more often than not, if you're not seeing me walking around the neighborhood, you will find me uh, in the Special Collections and Archives Division of the New York Public Library or the New York Historical Society or the Brooklyn Historical Society. Um, I love to... uh, delve as deeply as possible into uh, primary source materials. I think it's really cool uh, to be able to unearth uh, just the wonderful secrets of this city. Wow. And what kind of events can we find you at that you that you share or host? Uh, sure. Well, I do uh, lectures, panel discussions, sometimes even uh, historical dance parties uh, around the city uh, through organizations like the 92nd Street Y, Landmarks West, um, the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation. Um, so if you check out my website, uh, www.archiveonparade.com, you can find a whole list of upcoming events. And, and what's your email address? That's lucy at archiveonparade.com. So L-U-C-I-E at A-R-C-H-I-V-E-O-N-P-A-R-A-D-E dot com. Well, great, great. Well, coming back to your home neighborhood, um, let's talk about the Dakota. When was the Dakota built? Uh, So the Dakota was built in the 1880s by uh, Henry Hardenberg. Um, And it's known as the Dakota. This is a very well-known fact. I'm sure you you already know this. But the Dakota uh, was nicknamed the Dakota by Hardenberg himself because it was so isolated at that time on Central Park West. It was really the only uh, building there at that time. And it was said to be so far away uh, from the rest of New York City that it was as far as the Dakota territories. Wow. Wow. I've seen pictures of the Dakota and it looks like there was farmland around when it went, when it went up and Central Park across the street. Yes, indeed. Um, when people talk about parks and the Upper West Side, the one that always comes to mind is Central Park. We're going to actually have another episode on Central Park. But we also have Riverside Park, and you mentioned that it was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. When, when was the park designed? Uh, that's a great question. So the initial designs uh, are 1873 to 1875, uh, and he also designed... Uh, Riverside Drive. So he designed them uh, in conjunction with one another. So Riverside Drive uh, was uh, supposed to be sort of outside of the grid. Frederick Law Olmsted hated grids because it was unnatural to him. He didn't think that the street grid uh, made any sense, and so he wanted to create something that uh, followed the contours of the land, uh, which Riverside Drive actually does, the original contours of Manhattan Schist, uh, and then he wanted to extend that naturalism uh, down toward the river. So you saw the creation of Riverside Drive and then Riverside Park uh, onto and up until the railroad right-of-way, uh, and Riverside Drive uh, opened uh, 1880. So uh, Riverside Drive and the park were designed around the same time, the same concept. Yes, they were designed uh, together. Hmm. Well, as beautiful as Central Park is in so many ways, Riverside Drive is one of the most beautiful streets in the whole city. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, just, it's just glorious. Um, one of the real treasures of New York that a lot of people haven't been to is the 79th Street Boat Basin that's actually in Riverside Park, but not just the basin itself, but the structure that's in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, did Olmsted design that? Not at all. So the 79th Street Boat Basin is a pro- uh, product of the West Side Improvement, uh, which was one of the largest public works uh, programs ever conceived in American history. Uh, and it was... Uh, completed under Robert Moses in 1934. Uh, So he was able to do uh, in three years what nobody had done in 40 years. The um, West Side Improvement Project is something that uh, Westsiders had been talking about as early as 1891, uh, wanting to beautify the park, wanting to cover the railroad tracks along the river, wanting to um, 
just sort of upgrade their environment. Uh, but the money that it would take to cover the tracks, that it would take to extend uh, Riverside Drive and Park, uh, they just could not find. But who was able to find it? None other than the Prince of Parkways, the most Machiavellian uh, parks administrator there ever was, uh, Robert Moses. And so the 79th Street Boat Basin was actually really part and parcel of how that happened. Uh, Robert Moses was a, a genius for finding money, and he did that via the 79th Street Boat Basin. In yeah, how did he find that money? I know that the, he was able to find the money for the for, for the bridges by, you know, uh, being granted an authority and slapping a toll on and not having to be accountable to the legislature for the money. But where did he get the money for the West Side Improvement Project? That's a great question. So uh, it was grade-crossing elimination. He realized that... Um, the state of New York had all of these funds for grade crossing elimination, which is a very fancy way of saying that um, if you're going to lift a highway over a set of railroad tracks, the state will pay for it. Uh, and he said, okay, my 79th Street boat basin is going to be the most elaborate grade crossing elimination in the entire country. Uh, and so when I see a boat basin, and when you see a boat basin, you don't see grade crossing elimination, but uh, Robert Moses uh, was able to call it that, even though, of course, it's not that. Uh, but the reason he was able to call it that is because the uh, Henry Hudson Parkway uh, does a series of loop-de-loops underneath the 79th Street Boat Basin, and that's how he was able to uh, get that money. And so that was sort of the initial grant of money that he was able to um, take uh, into his coffers for what became the entire West Side improvement from uh, 72nd Street all the way up to Fort Washington Park. So it was pretty extraordinary. And for our listeners who haven't had the pleasure, uh, the 79th Street Boat Basin has a really nice bar and restaurant that's open from the spring to the fall. It's a wonderful place to go, especially on a warm afternoon and evening when the sun is setting over the Hudson River. It's one of those special New York experiences. It takes a little bit to get there sometimes because it's on the edge of the island, but it's well, well worth the trip. Uh, moving back a little bit to another uh, part of transportation. Um, how did the, the new subway that opened up in 1904 impact the development of the Upper West Side? Um, so the original IRT, 1904, uh, as I said, the same thing with the 9th Avenue L, that it moved uh, people uptown. It moved people uh, to the neighborhood. And what was so interesting about it uh, is that you have Riverside Drive opens uh, 1880, but it's it's called Riverside Avenue. It's not actually called Riverside Drive until 1908 when it's extended to 155th Street. So uh, that first decade of the 20th century really coincides with uh, the growth of the neighborhood um, because you have the subway uh, and then you have the extension of the avenue. Um, and so those two things together uh, made it uh, really the, the residential area that it became. Hmm. From a building standpoint, when did the Upper West Side that we know today uh, begin to look like the neighborhood that we know today? Uh, really, uh, the 1920s. Uh, you won't see uh, dense development uh, before then. In the 18... Well, Riverside Avenue, Riverside Drive opens in the 1880s, and you'll get a few uh, of these very large estates. But in general, uh, the glitterati, right, the, the Vanderbilts and the Whitney's and things like that, they didn't actually move to the west side in the way that uh, developers hoped that they would because of the railroad tracks. We were talking earlier about the railroad tracks. Uh, you have to remember these were steam locomotives along the river, and that meant... Um, the steam was wafting up toward the windows of these grand estates. Um, it meant that there was noise. It meant that there were, um, you know, all kinds of really kind of gritty and disgusting things going on uh, on the west side that people who had that kind of money didn't want to deal with. Uh, so they stayed on the east side because they didn't need the river views. They already had cottages at Newport, and so they didn't come uh, in the way that developers hoped that they would. But um, in the 1920s, uh, with the boom and all this, um, developers started to uh, build apartment houses instead, and they would build these very, very lavish apartment houses. And so it was really the first time that people who had means but were not of that sort of wildly high echelon uh, were able to fancy themselves, you know, very elite because of these very beautiful um, apartment houses. Mm. How did the Depression in the 1930s impact residential housing in the neighborhood? Uh, you know, it just decimated it. So 
something like the San Remo uh, on on um, Central Park West opens 1930. Um, and the assumption, you know, is that they're going to be able to um, sell it to to people who are going to have all this money and then people don't have the money. And um, the developers of those buildings uh, had to sell them for what we would consider today to be a pittance, that they were not able uh they were not able to fill them. Wow. So when did the Upper West Side begin to gentrify? That's a term that's used a lot. When did, when did it, it begin to? Because I remember when I was uh, young, and we, I'm, young, I'm 58, and I was born in 1960, and I, when we would visit friends on the Upper West Side, I remember like up in the 80s, even down by Riverside Drive, it was really gritty, really. Mm-hmm. You know, it was not the, not the Upper West Side that we know today. When, when did a good part of the neighborhood begin to change and become more gentrified? Uh, in the 1990s, uh, Rudy Giuliani, when he started to uh, clean up the city, so to speak, um, he really targeted the West Side pretty seriously, uh, starting uh, as low as Times Square and then going all the way up. Um, so, you know, when you stop being able to purchase sheets of acid in Times Square, you also uh, had a cleaner <laughs> had a cleaner Upper West Side. Oh. Uh, you know, one of the streets that always fascinates me is West End Avenue because it, it, it looks like it's, not that it's uniform, but that it's, um, there's, a, there's a standard about it. It's not very commercial. Um, was there any kind of a grand plan of West End Avenue that, that would not have retail establishments there? Or how did, how did the, how did the, and the apartment buildings don't seem to be taller than 13 or 14 stories. How did, how did it get developed? That's a great question. So West End Avenue uh, was home to... Uh, the West Side um, Residence Committee. So it was one of the very first um, historic preservation and uh, neighborhood ad- advocacy uh, community organizations in the city. Uh, and so the homeowners of West End Avenue themselves uh, pioneered that. And so because they were so interested in the community aspect of that part of town, you're absolutely right that they would not allow uh, any kind of retail uh, on West End Avenue. So West End Avenue uh, was sort of the model um, community-based part of the neighborhood, that it was very much entirely uh, for residents. You're absolutely right. And was it zoned, just to be zone residential? Or, and so you could not open a retail establishment? Or was it because of the pressure that, that, that people felt from from this committee, from this organization? Uh, it was the pressure. They were actually the very first ones in the 1890s to open the idea of the West Side Improvement. So uh, they were very powerful in this part of town. You know, you do see some townhouses on West End Avenue. Were, um, were there a lot of townhouses that were torn down to make way for the apartment buildings? Um, yes. Oh, yes. okay. Okay. Well, Lucy, this has been great. Thank you so much. Uh, Our first guest on the show tonight uh, has been Lucy Levine. She's a writer, historian, and New York City tour guide. Her business is Archive on Parade. And uh, so glad that you not only joined the show, but that you got to talk about your home neighborhood tonight. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Thank you. We'll be back in a moment with our second guest of the evening. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m. we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Michael Dolce, host of Secrets of the Sire. Joined every week by my co-host, Hassan, Lord of the Radio Godwin. Together, we have over 15 years' experience creating graphic novels, screenplays, and more. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about. Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day.
We're back. Welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Support for the show comes from the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team will be happy to help you, and they can be reached at 646-330-4735. And the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. One thing our show is not, uh, we're not a business show about real estate. Not usually. But there is a good one. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my colleague at Halstead. He's on Tuesday mornings, live at 9 a.m., and you can hear his show at voiceamerica.com, and his shows are archived just like mine are. You can like us on Facebook. Our page is called Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. How novel. And you can also follow me on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram handle is jeffgoodmannyc. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list for the show, you can email me. Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. My next guest is a local business person on the Upper West Side, Katie Thompson, who's the founder and owner of the KT Collection on Columbus Avenue. Katie began stringing stones and playing with silver wire when she was 10. At 14, she was soldering and selling to her first hometown Virginia boutique. After years of living abroad, doing editorial work for Travel and Leisure magazine and getting a master's in European politics at NYU, Katie ended up coming back to what she has always loved and done best, designing and making jewelry. Katie's distinctive style, style is influenced by the New York City streets as well as her travels throughout India, the Middle East, Asia, Europe, and South America. She loves mixing metals to create pieces that are classic and easy to wear with just a touch of an edge to make them stand out. Katie can often be found at the store or one of her holiday booths wearing her creations and helping customers choose just the right piece. We're also at her new pop-up store, which we will mention a little bit later in the show. Katie, welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You're not from New York originally. No. I um, am from Virginia, and I spent my childhood moving around a lot, and I've been here since 2000. Well, stringing stones and playing with wire when you were 10 years old, that's not something you hear a lot about people in their childhood. What was it that first got you involved with that kind of artistic work? Well, I always, a couple, I mean, a couple of things could have predicted that this is, that I would be a business owner. Now, I used, um, used to turn my room into a store and make my family come buy things, <laughs> you know, for, with fake money. Uh, as a child, and then uh, a family friend taught me how to make jewelry with, you know, wire and and beads and stones, and I just and to even solder, and and I loved it, and um, I just worked really hard on, you know, to make these earrings and sell them to the local boutique. I I would not recommend buying those earrings, but you know, some people did, and that was the start of that. God, you bring back a childhood memory for me. I uh, grew up in a nice house, and there was a workroom downstairs. And I think when I was seven or eight, I discovered a bunch of one-by-twos, a saw, and a hammer and nails. And I would make these <laughs> picture frames. And at uh, family dinners, I would try. I would. I would hawk them for like a dollar a piece. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh -huh. It's encouraging. Well, I can't walk by any child selling anything without buying it <laughs> now. But you don't hear of many people starting to sell to businesses, not just to uh, mm -hmm. people directly, but to businesses at 14, let alone artistic or customized creations. How did you get started on that? Well, I mean, as I said, I'm from Virginia. It's a small college town. Um, so it was a smaller community. And, and I was pretty, you know, somehow I talked my way into the local boutique um, and sold it for hardly anything, you know, which is... So I think that's probably how that started, but, um, uh, you know, and I was encouraged by my parents and they're both professors. So it was encouraged as a very, as a side hobby, which is why it took me a long time to come back to it as, as my profession. Hmm. Well, not that I'm trying to peg your age or anything, but, but when did you leave the United States to live abroad? Was it in college? Was it before? Was it after? What had you decide to, uh, uh, to, uh, to move your, your stake in, in living for a bit? Well, my, uh, you know, my parents lived abroad as well. As a child, I, I spent many years in, in grade school and, and high school, you know, in, in Europe and mostly France and Germany. 
Um, so I had grown up a little bit everywhere. And then in my 20s, I decided that waitressing around the world is a great way to earn money and meet people. And it was fun. And, and I would teach English to pay the rent. And, um, you know, it's a, good, it's a good thing to do in your 20s, something that I think more kids of that age need to be doing now. Everybody's so intent on making it right away. <laughs> well, it sounds a lot more adventurous than I did. I studied for a year in England, but I had a place to go. I was a student, you know, didn't have much money, but I was, I was there. But I didn't have to really make my way. What countries did you, did you live and work in? Well, I studied in, in France. Um, that's was the, you know, that's where I studied and went to university. But otherwise, as far as working and teaching English and waitressing, I, I lived in Estonia and Russia, France, um, Chile, Germany. Uh, you know, serving food is a great way to learn a language because people, it's a lot of small talk and they, uh, but they want their food. So you need to get it right. <laughs> Did you start working with travel and leisure when you were living overseas, or did you do that when you when you came back to the States? I moved to New York, um, and that was my, my first job as a fact checker, which I don't think there are many of them anymore, but um, I was... <laughs> well, a, a couple of prominent places these days, but we won't get into that. <laughs> yeah, well, we need more of them, I would say. Um, and that was my first job, which made a lot of sense with foreign languages and the, you know, and the experience in travel, and, and it was a wonderful experience for, I think, three or four years I worked there. Um, and then I, it took me that long to realize that I, I really read more novels than I do magazines. So, <laughs> it, you know, that was a good segue then to go back to school. Um, but the experience in editing is, of course, something you use in everything you do. And you went for your master's in European politics after your travel and leisure. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was there any defining moment that had you decide to, to go back to school to do that? Or was it a, like a long dream that you had, a long-held dream? I mean, I, I was always encouraged. In my family, it was sort of expected that everybody get a master's degree. And I looked around at the at the magazine, and this was realized I didn't want anybody else's job. You know, I wasn't jealous of anybody who was higher up. So I, it was time to make a change. And, um, you know, I, I just had a really good opportunity. And, and uh, that's that. Well, not to get too far off the beaten path of, of, of your business in the Upper West Side, were there any countries in particular that you were passionate about following their, their politics or, 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 st- or studying them? I mean, France has always been the, you know, was the center of my studies and especially the immigration policies and, you know, how Europe is changing so much as well as far as what its identity is with, with, with um, you know, immigrants. But I would say that that was sort of the crux of my studies and what I found most interesting. And it still is, you know, changing and happening so much today. Well, after you got your master's, how did you get back into designing and making jewelry? What, uh, what, what is it that kind of brought you back to what you were doing when you were 10 and 14 years old? Well, as I said, it was, it was always uh, very encouraged as a hobby, making jewelry. But, you know, it, in my family, it was kind of like, get your master's and then we'll talk. You know? And, um, during the whole time of working in travel and leisure and also, um, you know, being in grad school, we would spend weekends doing uh, at a flea market in the East Village selling jewelry. The first, you know, we'd spend $40. My, my husband would help me do this as well. Um, and that sort of grew into this business where we would literally do every street fair. We three locations every Saturday, three locations every Sunday. We would, you know, drop girls off, set them up, move around. And it, it grew very fast. And, and when I finished my master's, I had a baby a uh, week before graduation. Um, and, you know, it's it was a lot more appealing to work with this business that was already very successful than to take a job with two week vacations and a new baby. And, (laughs) um, so that's kind of, you know, how it happened. I had no idea that, that, um, selling people love jewelry (laughs) (laughs) and it's, it was lucrative enough to make that switch. And they love beautiful jewelry and they love creative jewelry. That's Mm -hmm. not just run of the mill. That's, that's actually comes from the heart and that's custom made. It took me a long time to realize that, but yeah. Um, I know that some of your flea markets were in the East Village. What other neighborhoods did you were you selling in markets? Well, we started on the one on Avenue A. I don't know if it's still there at the little churchyard. Um, on 12th Street at Avenue A? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, I used to live in the East Village. Uh, it's since come down. Uh, I think sure? it's since come down for condos now. You know, the, I'm sure. Like the I mean, line. we used to bike it, bike our jewelry over and... Um, and, and then we grew into doing all of the street fairs in New York. So we would be in three locations. And what really, you know, and it was what made, what made it so 
uh, successful is that we would publish where we're going to be online. We would be, we would say we're going to be in the Upper West Side and Midtown and downtown pretty much every day because there were so many street fairs in New York City. And um, a lot of people who make things and are creative would sort of look down upon that, you know, because sometimes I would be next to the $3 socks from China and the, you know, tchotchkes. And, and for me, I saw it as a really great opportunity to stand out because we would have, you know, attractive, educated women working these booths. I would say I want them to have the same service they would have at, you know, Bergdorf Goodman's, but on the street, um, you know, we would... And we, did you find that it was that was an important part of developing your uh, your retail business? Absolutely. Oh, because people love to find their little art, artist on the, on, in New York City, and they would leave and say, oh, I found, you know, this is a woman I found on the street. And we built up a very loyal following. I would never have opened a store without having built up that following first because it's it's too scary and, you know, it's hard to get people in your door. And then we started doing all of the holiday markets um, and you have such great foot traffic there. And, and so we really had grown our company to a very big level, bef- you know, what we thought before we wanted to go into a brick and mortar store. Before you opened up the store on Columbus Avenue, which I'll ask you about in a couple of minutes, did you, uh, while you were selling at markets, did you also sell to other, to, to retail places? To, we would wholesale a little bit. I think uh-huh. Liana on the Upper West Side was the first store to carry a necklace. Um, but we really focused more on, on, on retailing. What had you decide to open up your own shop as opposed to do the, to do the market thing? Well, one, it is exhausting. I mean, for seven years, we did not really, we missed weddings and weekends and, and uh, my husband and I did. And um, we also had children during that time. Um, when they were young, it was wonderful because in the off season, we would go to Asia for three months and we kind of thought we had beat the system and travel. And then, you know, once they were in school and we realized we weren't allowed to take them out, we wanted something a little bit more that would go with their schedule. Mm. And and it was, you know, and we also realized that we would age very fast continuing the street fairs. <laughs> Certain businesses do, do that to you. Yes, <laughs> yes. As can the real estate business. Um, what was it about the Upper West Side that had you decide to plant your flag here and, and open up your, your first brick and mortar store here? Um, our studio was on 72nd Street. And so we had already kind of were used to living, you know, working here. We live in Harlem. Uh, it was a neighborhood that made sense. Um, we had 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 a lot of customers in this neighborhood, uh, and it's also where we were able to talk somebody into giving us a chance. Because when you come from the street, it's very difficult. You know, when you've been selling on the street, it's difficult to convince landlords to give you a chance. Mm. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Katie Thompson and her businesses on the Upper West Side. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com We're back. You're back to Rediscovering New York with my second guest, Katie Thompson. 
owner of the KT Collection and partners with a pop-up shop called Runaway Poppy. Katie, why don't you talk for a minute about your two businesses and where they are so people, our listeners, can uh, seek you out? Um, well, Katie Collection, we've been in this location um, for two and a half years, uh, almost three. And we are on the corner of 73rd Street and Columbus Avenue, right upstairs from Alice's Teacup, which is wonderful because they're a real institution in this neighborhood as well. Um, and then uh, we have a second, our sort of sister store, which is um, on Broadway right across from Zabar's, and it's called Runaway Poppy. And uh, it's a pop-up that we're hoping to stay as long as we can. <laughs> but you also have some different kinds of merchant. You have some of your art, your uh, jewelry creations at, at uh, Runaway Poppy, but you also have other things too. Like I, I love those pictures of those posters of the old travel mm-hmm. you know, the airlines and Burma railways, and all, they're, they're really really nice. What what are the kinds of things do you have at Runaway Poppy that you don't have at the KT Collection? Well, you know, KT Collection is really handbags and jewelry mostly. We have you know costume handmade. About sixty percent of it we hand make in our in the neighborhood in a studio. I have one assistant who makes the jewelry with me. And we have fine jewelry. And what's really been fun about Runaway Poppy is that uh, my cousin and I discovered an artist and you know who does ceramics and on a trip to Vietnam, fell in love. Um, sort of dreamed about starting this business with everything else we're passionate about and we love. And then we're given this opportunity with our landlord to be able to, um, you know, to to open it. So we have artwork. We have, you know, candles. We have. Um, hand-painted ceramics, rugs, uh, artwork, and it's going to be evolving, you know, each month mm. with new things. And I love those pictures. I really do. I'm a big yeah. uh, old, old travel maven. Uh, takes you back it's to the 30s. It's very travel-inspired, yes. Yeah, yeah. What is it that you like about the vibe of the Upper West Side? What What is it that had you decide? Well, I know you meant your uh, studio is there, but personally, what is it that you really like about, about this neighborhood and its vibe? I mean, what I like the most is that it is really a small town. It feels it feels very community. Um, I live in Harlem, and my children go to school in the '90s and in the '80s. Uh, and it's been interesting how the world has, you know. I think a lot of people from the Upper West Side have also sort of moved up to Harlem as well, and so it feels like. We never really go below <laughs> 65th Street. It's like our own city, and and um, people come in and with their daughters just to you know say say hi, Miss Katie, because they know me as the store owner, and we you know it's just such a community feeling um, that I don't think you have everywhere in New York. Mm. Do you find that most of your customers actually live in the neighborhood, or do they also come from other parts of town? To most of it, we don't get too many downtowners. Unfortunately, uh-huh. I think it's hard to get people from downtown to come up. Except, it's nice that we're near the museum, so we will get them if they're going on, you know, to spend a day at the museum. Uh, otherwise, I would say that it is mostly um, from everywhere, but a lot of locals and um, from further uptown. And then we do get quite a quite a bit of tourists as well. Mm. who are here for the museum, people going to the Beacon. Um, that's a big draw. Alice's Teacup is a huge draw for us, uh, you know. Um, so I would say from everywhere. Mm. We're always speaking a lot of languages in that store. <laughs> One thing that's interesting about the Upper West Side is compared to the Upper East Side, it's actually a thinner neighborhood. It doesn't, it's, it's not as wide, it's not as big. Mm-hmm. But each of the main streets are really different. I mean, Columbus has a certain vibe to and Amsterdam has a very different kind of vibe. And Broadway is different. You know, talk about neighborhood change. I remember when I got out of college, there was this bar on uh, Amsterdam and 72nd Street that sort of was, I forgot the name of it now, but I used to go there a lot in the 80s. Um, but um, you know, how, how do you see the differences in the avenues? And now that you have businesses on different, on, on, on two distinct avenues, what, what do the differences mean to you? How do you see them? Um, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, they are three very different avenues and I'm discovering a lot more now with our new, with our new store, Runaway Poppy on Broadway. Um, you know, Columbus is quiet. I think we don't have the same, you know, a huge amount of, of foot traffic. I think, unfortunately, sometimes we get very, very high end stores there when a lot of times we need stores that sort of serve the public a little bit more, you know, as we see some of these small businesses closing, um, Amsterdam has become such a fun street with restaurants and nightlife and so many bars and different different you know choices there and I think Broadway 
you know, is kind of figuring out still what it is, is my feeling. Because I, I was a little bit nervous opening a store there because I feel like people come out of the subway and then you have, you know, some discount stores and they're going home, you know, they're running their errands, there's staples, there's grocery stores, you know, you're running your errands going home. But opening Runaway Poppy, we've really seen that people are ready to linger if you give them something, you know, to stop and, and, and look. So it's been interesting to be on Broadway after after Columbus. I think people walk down Columbus wanting to shop, wanting to go into stores and look, wanting to sort of linger. And Broadway is is an errand street, but we're trying to change that. Mm. <laughs> and I think there's a real need for more, you know, independent stores in the Upper West Side. People want it, you know. Well, the pop-up shop is a great invention, and it's sort of a great, you know, cultural uh, institution, I think. Uh, what was it that had you decide that you wanted to open up a pop-up shop? It's a very different process from saying, I'm going to take a long-term lease, and I'm going to invest all this money in design. It's going to be, not that it's necessarily transient, but it's a different, it's a different way to start a retail business. Well, I have one of the kindest, uh, you know, old school landlords in, in New York City who, um, you know, bought bought the building where Katie Collection is years ago with a partner and really, really is dedicated to keeping New York not just chains and banks and, and, and um, would only rent that space to mom and pops, you know, and he is wonderful. And so he saw I think he's also smart because a lot of these shuttered businesses it takes so long to you know to rent and so we kind of worked out something together where um we were able to try this business out without having to kind of sign a sign a really long-term lease which now we were starting to want to because oh. <laughs> we love the neighborhood but it's a great way to test it out because that's what I think is so hard for independent businesses in New York City the rent is just so prohibitive that if you haven't it's it's scary to take that leap hmm well, I want to dig a little bit into this. I mean, from a practical standpoint, it makes sense to to want to do that. Was there anything that excited you by the prospect of doing a pop-up shop? Not just not having to take the long-term commitment and make that investment and make that... You know, well, it was a personal decision. I mean, I have three children, and my fourth child is Katie Collection. My cousin, Cara Milling, who is, who is the co-owner of, of Runaway Poppy, also has another business as well. Um, this is really a passion project for us, but it's not something we were ready to commit to full time from the get go. Because also we wanted to see what the reaction, you know, was was from people, and it's just been a huge, huge, wonderful reaction. Because, like I said, I think there's just not enough small, you know, stylish businesses that are independently owned that people feel good about supporting. Um, we do have have them in the Upper West Side, but I think we all, you know, as New Yorkers are happy to see more, more of them. And I'm guessing you probably get a different, not kind of clientele, but just a different people thinking of a different mindset when they come into Runaway Poppy versus the KT collection. Uh, people yeah. I mean, they're coming out of the subway. It takes so long when you have a store to get somebody to walk in the door the first, for the first time. You know, I think about yourself. I don't know. I walk by something at least 20 times before I say, hmm, let me go check it out. Um, so we're sort of still discovering, you know, discovering that and there's a huge crossover with Katie Collection. I mean, one thing that I think to when you're asking about what we love about the Upper West Side, I think people are really seeking a community out of businesses as well. So we organize a, a monthly wine event, you know, which which people come to and they really become sort of friends and created we create a community around around the the store as well. Um and that's something we want to do with run you know, we're doing with Runaway Poppy as well. Hmm. Do you think you'll open up another business on the Upper no, West Side? Some point? No, absolutely not. No way. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Like I said, that's like my fifth baby now. That's enough. Okay. <laughs> it's a lot of work, but we love it. One final question. Do you have any advice for someone who's thinking about opening up a business in the neighborhood that might be different uh, just since you're here and you've been here mm -hmm. and you're part of the community and you've extended your reach into the community? I mean, I, like I said, I think that people are looking for more than just buying a product. They want the story. They want to walk in. I'm from Virginia. I'm from a small town. And I think there's so many stores you walk in and people are looking at their phone and look disinterested. They want to, you know, walk into a store, have you know their name after they've been there five times, give you the small town service. Um, and, you know, it's hard to compete with the, with Amazon and the big guys, but I, I, really think of every single thing I can do as a small business to give people what big businesses can't. And I think that's the only way you can create the loyalty 
and the community that you also want feeling good about your product, you know, and the Upper West Side or, or anywhere in New York, really. But Well, great. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Well, we've just finished this week's journey to the Upper West Side with Lucy Levine of Archive on Parade and Katie Thompson of the KT Collection and Runaway Poppy. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on the show's mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and you can also follow me on Instagram, and my handle is jeffgoodmannyc. How novel for someone being from New York. I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. And we have one other sponsor, me. I'm a real estate agent at Halstead. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. And for this episode, a special thank you to Nicole Painter of the Columbus Avenue Business Improvement District. Stay tuned for At Home with David Thiergartner, coming up next at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Michael Dolce, host of Secrets of the Sire. Joined every week by my co-host, Hassan, Lord of the Radio Godwin. Together, we have over 15 years' experience creating graphic novels, screenplays, and more. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about. Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, talkradio.nyc. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.